Representing Slavery Comparing Museums in the UK, the Netherlands and Belgium Museums Ornate old buildings, somewhere to take the kids on a rainy day, the destination of many school trips. But behind the beautiful facades, who is making decisions about what the museums display and what we, the visitors, learn? Britain, the Netherlands and Belgium all played a significant role in colonial slavery. Yet, until recently, these countries preferred to keep quiet about slavery and its legacy. This is beginning to change. My name is Catherine Newell. I'm a BA Modern Languages and Cultures student at the University of Sheffield. And in the summer, I completed a sure research project on the representation of slavery in museums. In Liverpool's Albert Dock, just metres from where slave ships were once repaired, a tall, red brick building houses the International Slavery Museum. It opened in 2007 on the bicentenary of the abolition of the British slave trade. It aims to promote understanding of the transatlantic slave trade and the impact it had, and still has, on our society today. Head across the North Sea, and the Netherlands is another former colonial power currently grappling with how to portray slavery in its museums. In the centre of Amsterdam, stepping off your canal cruise and crossing the bike-filled street, you reach the star of the museum quarter, the Rijksmuseum. This 19th century building attracts millions of visitors every year, from all around the Netherlands and further afield. From May to August 2021, there was a new collection to visit, the Rijksmuseum Slavery Exhibition. For those who would prefer to travel to the Netherlands' southern neighbour, you can find the Africa Museum in the Park van der Voorde, on the edge of Brussels. Behind the manicured lawns and sparkling lake stands a museum with a dark past. The Africa Museum's origins lie in the Brussels International Exhibition of 1897, when it played host to Leopold II's colonial collection, including a human zoo, where Congolese people were put on display seven of whom died. Anthropologist Hugo de Bloch once described the Africa Museum as the last colonial museum in the world. After a five-year renovation project designed to puncture that colonialist mechanism, the Africa Museum reopened in 2018. In this podcast, I will examine these three museums and the way they represent their country's involvement in the slave trade and exploitation of African people. How is the narrative they tell changing? I will look at how they balance the need to tell the stories of individuals, of real people with real lives and names and feelings, and the desire to press home the immense scale of the slave trade and of the plantation economy. For the 2021 Slavery Exhibition, the Amsterdam Rijksmuseum had to reinvent itself. This exhibition is the Rijksmuseum's first ever on slavery and, according to the Rijksmuseum's website, It offers a geographically broad and at the same time specifically Dutch view which has never been seen before in a national museum. The Rijksmuseum, 
whose own think tank had described it as a temple of colonial self-overestimation, is now being used to show the damage caused by Dutch colonial slavery. One of the ways that they're doing this is through reframing objects from the existing collection. One of the curators, Falika Smulders, explained that addressing the collection in this way is important because the collection and the building aren't neutral. One of the works moved to the exhibition is Rembrandt's portrait of Martin and Opion, which had been located in the Gallery of Honour next to the famous Nightwatch. When the Rijksmuseum bought these portraits, they didn't know that these paintings were connected to slavery. So where did Martin and Opion's obvious wealth come from? Now their slavery connections are explained in the audio tour. Martin grew up in his father's sugar refinery, which processed sugar harvested by enslaved people in South America, while Opion's second husband served for the Dutch West India Company in Brazil, where he had a daughter with an African woman named Francisca. The audio tour doesn't shy away from the horrors of slavery, explaining that this child was conceived through rape. Another object on display in the slavery exhibition is a metal collar, engraved with a family crest. When this collar entered the Rijksmuseum's collection in 1881, it was categorised as a dog collar. But while preparing for this exhibition, curators realised that it had probably been worn by an African person, as paintings show similar collars being worn by men, or dogs or leather collars. Was the collar intentionally miscategorised when it entered the collection? Or was the possibility that it was for humans just overlooked? Either way, relabeling it now shows not only a willingness to change the museum's narrative, but also a new way of looking at Dutch history. And how did the Belgian Museum tackle its collection? The African Museum enlisted Congolese artist Emme Mpane and Belgian artist Jean-Pierre Muller to recontextualize some of its objects. 16 colonialist statues now have semi-transparent veils hanging in front of them, leaving the statues visible yet reinterpreting them at the same time. Empane also created two statues to serve as a counterweight, one alluding to the horrors of the past, the other to the promise of the future. Some other sculptures have been moved to a room called the Sculpture Depot. This is a room for sculptures which no longer belong in their original context. This includes the Leopard Man statue. As the guidebook explains, This shows a man in a leopard skin with a mask over his head. In his hands are sharp knives which he is aiming at his victim. Reorganisation, a painting by Sherry Samba, is displayed in the same room. It acknowledges the controversy about the Leopard Man. This painting shows a tug-of-war over the Leopard Man statue between African and diasporic communities who want it out of the museum and white administrators shown in an unflattering light who want it to remain in the museum. Displaying this painting alongside the statue is a step away from the museum's earlier narrative when the statue is being displayed uncritically. At the same time, the museum is showing here that they're aware that some African communities want the statue removed, and yet they're keeping the statue in place. Does this mean that the curators are consciously making decisions that many people of African descent disagree with? This seems to go against the museum's own aim of providing a prominent place for African perspectives on the past, present and future. 
The museum says that it wants to eliminate stereotypes, prejudices and discrimination against Africans and people of African origin. It has certain rules for events, including things run by external organisations, such as banning blackface and comparing black people to animals. While not doing blackface is clearly an extremely low bar when it comes to not being racist, these measures do mark a major contrast with its origins as the host of a human zoo. Back in Liverpool, the International Slavery Museum goes even further, saying it aims to contribute to eradicating racism evermore. Since the public attention given to the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, new information boards have been hung up in the museum. They say, People don't want tokenistic statements. Instead, they want to see what organisations like National Museums Liverpool do to tackle this head-on. We are committed to being an anti-racist organisation. Our thoughts, words and actions are with those working tirelessly to dismantle systems of oppression. The sign also explains that the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020 accelerated how they talk about racism. However, it isn't completely clear what changes the museum has made to actively support activists working to fight racism today. These museums have undergone a lot of changes, but there are still some areas where the legacy of colonisation gets glossed over. For example, the African Museum's guidebook says that French is the official language in Congo, Rwanda and Burundi, but it doesn't mention why this is the case. The African Museum also has a room called the Resource Paradox, suggesting it's a mystery why many people in Central Africa live in poverty despite an abundance of natural resources. In a review of the exhibition, historian Elaine Sullivan suggests that the resource paradox room should really be called massive looting, as this would acknowledge the role that colonialism had in creating the comparative poverty in Central Africa today. The International Slavery Museum is, as its name suggests, very international. This does mean that less attention is paid to British colonialism than could be. One fairly striking omission is in the display on South Africa. The sign explains that the Dutch East India Company built a settlement there, but it doesn't mention the British invasion of South Africa at all. The Dutch colonisation of South Africa is an important part of international history, but is it right for a British museum to not acknowledge Britain's role at all? The International Slavery Museum also has a gallery that focuses on the modern-day legacies of slavery. This includes a large focus on the USA. There's a display about words of African origin in song lyrics, where half of the songs are American, and a sign about African foods in the Americas. There's also a KKK outfit from New York, and information about civil rights activists like Martin Luther King Jr., Of course it's important to talk about the effects of slavery in former British colonies, such as America. However, as the historian David Olusoga says, focusing on America is often used by British people as a way to excuse or downplay British racism, something you may have seen in the media or even in school history classes. Another way that the International Slavery Museum explores the multicultural legacies of colonialism 
is through quotes from black people today. This includes a display entitled, What does it mean to be black British, African American or of African descent in other parts of the world? This features stories from people in Britain and America whose ancestors had been enslaved. The Rights Museum also uses the voices of the descendants of enslaved people to provide a link to the past. All of the narrators of the audio tour have a connection to the person whose life they are discussing, such as having the same nationality or even having ancestors who are enslaved in the same place as the person whose story they are telling. For example, the actress Joy DeLima tells the story of Girard, who was sold at the same place as DeLima's own ancestors. Some of the narrators also speak more directly about how their ancestors' enslavement impacts them. For example, kickboxer Remy Bonyaski says, The might by which Wally and the other people on the Palmetto Rebo plantation revolted is still in my blood. It has been passed down through generations and is one of the reasons why I was able to become kickboxing world champion three times. The audio tour also contains an extract from a 1958 recording of Marchichi a woman from Curaçao, who was 10 years old when slavery was abolished there. Using her audio recording highlights how recent slavery is, showing that it cannot be seen as some distant historical event. Whichever parts of history a museum is telling, there are two ways to do it, either focusing on the stories of individuals or on wider events. One of the most powerful reasons to focus on personal stories is that enslaved people were anonymized and dehumanized, their names were changed and identities ignored. So when we do uncover these details, we should highlight them. Rijksmuseum curator Falika Smilders also says, If I can make it clear that this isn't a story of black versus white, that it's more complicated than that, then that's good. Focusing on personal stories can help to illustrate this, highlighting the role that individuals played rather than grouping people by features such as race. Others point out that structural racism still affects the lives of people of colour today, and focusing on individuals risks downplaying that. As Mitchell Isaias, one of the founders of the Black Archives, points out, if you only focus on individuals, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that slavery was a global economic system which lasted for hundreds of years. It wasn't personal, it was systemic. The slavery exhibition in the Rijksmuseum takes a personal approach, focusing on 10 real-life stories. Nine of these stories focus on one person. The Van Benchala story is an exception. It tells the story of many different people who were taken from the Bay of Bengal and given this name. Visitors are invited to build a connection with the people in the stories and even to empathise with them. But the exhibition also wants to press home the scale of slavery. La Bouche du Roi, a large work by Romuald Hazemé, is made of jerry cans turned into faces and laid out in the familiar pattern of a slave ship. This impressive piece is accompanied by smells and sounds. This piece shows a wider picture, the scale and horror of the slave trade. Yet it also gives enslaved people their individual identities. Each jerry can is personalised. For example, one can has a blue and white symbol to show connections to the Yoruba sea goddess Olokun. The soundtrack includes people speaking in different African languages, which the British Museum's Chris Spring says shows Africans taking ownership of African history rather than Europeans imposing their version of history on Africa.
Back in the UK, the International Slavery Museum also displays a slave ship, but it's quite different. This recreation takes the form of a circular room where screens surround the visitors. On the screens, a rapidly moving video flashes up clips of things like pained faces, naked bodies and people vomiting. The audio track is of crashing waves and people screaming. The people in it are entirely anonymous. We don't even know where they're from or where they're going, yet we can see their suffering. We know that this happened to millions of people who were taken from Africa over hundreds of years. Even without knowing their identity, the display creates a sense of shared humanity. The International Slavery Museum also has another video display. This shows a woman, an actress, telling stories from a plantation in the Americas, such as watching an enslaved woman's children being taken from her to be sold to another man. She details how the mother cares for her children, washing them and getting them ready, knowing she'll likely never see them again. It would be impossible for viewers not to be struck with emotion. This story comes from the autobiography of Mary Prince, a woman born into slavery in Bermuda, but this origin isn't explained in the museum. Unlike in the Rijksmuseum, here the real people whose stories are being told are kept anonymous. The International Slavery Museum prioritises the universal over the individual. This is not the story of one, it's the story of many. Three museums in three different countries. Three nations exploring their legacy of slavery. Our attitudes are changing fast, spurred on by wider societal changes, such as the prominence of the Black Lives Matter movement. Museums are changing too. Exhibitions reflect the past, but above all, they reflect our understanding of the past, our present-day take on historical events. With each new exhibition or redevelopment, Curators are making decisions that reflect, or challenge, our attitudes towards slavery. More and more, the focus is on giving voices to people who were enslaved and their descendants. The wider picture is humanised into individual stories, real stories of real people. Next time you wander around a museum, take a look. Which stories are being told, and which stories are not being told? This podcast is part of the Sheffield Undergraduate Research Experience 2021. Text and research by Catherine Newell. I would like to thank Henriette Lauser for supervising this project. I would also like to thank Anna Kreich, Philippe de Coaster, Hannah Orlin, Henriette Lauser, Sarah Carbryan, Stan McKenzie and Winker Kindermans for contributing quote recordings to this podcast. Thank you.